The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Well, evening. Sure good to see you. And uh, I, um, I couldn't help but notice, as Brother Chris said, you know, coming in that the numbers were a little thin tonight. And I know there's a lot of a lot of sickness and everything going around, and you know it uh, it always um, grieves my heart to see people suffer, even when they're not suffering unto death. You know, when it's flu or that kind of thing, or some other more chronic affliction. You know, it just uh, it breaks your heart. And I uh, was thinking as we were singing that last song about the hope we have that. Someday, uh, even though in this life we're separated, we will be in His embrace. Amen. There's one family, one group of children Amen. that the Lord has loved with an everlasting love. Amen. It's a great comfort to me, especially when you come in a service and so many people are sick and they're gone, or certainly when you go to you know, a funeral service and mm-hmm. someone's passed on and you feel that sense of loss. To know that the Lord is looking outside time, and although He sees what we endure and He's with us, you know, His perspective is very, very different from ours. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's one reason that we're given the Lord's Word, is so that we can see a little bit of His perspective. I don't know about you, but when I open the Scriptures, uh, many times I'm just sort of overwhelmed with the amount of information that is there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it just seems like, you know, you go from the beginning of the Scripture and, and uh, you know, the Garden of Eden account and all that went on there in the creation account, and you get to the end and you read about the Bride of Christ and the oh, yeah. River of Life and the Lord being the beginning and the ending, and you try to put everything in the middle in perspective. It's not always easy, but I feel like if we look at the Scripture as a whole, and I don't mean that we can consider everything in the Bible, and I mean, certainly can't. You could spend the rest of your life here lecturing or preaching every single day until we're all in the grave and not get to the bottom of everything that's in the Word of God. Because there's some things in there, honestly, I don't think we'll completely understand until we're over yonder anyway. Yeah. But even if we took the things that we do understand, and we do know it would take many, many years. But we could look at general themes in the Scripture, I think, that comfort us and that point us toward the Savior and what He came to do. And to me, personally, I realize I'm dragging the introduction on a little bit here, but to me personally, it's kind of neat to look at some of those um, foreshadowings in the Old Testament that tell us about how Christ would come, because you understand that that's most of the gospel that the Old Testament saints have. That's right. Here's what I mean. If we understand that this world has been in existence some six to 7,000 years or so. We're here in the year of our Lord, 2018. That means that we've had the predominance of the Scripture in the New Testament for under 2,000 years. So there were a lot of people, I dare say billions perhaps, who lived before the time of Christ. And much of what the Old Testament saints, especially the nation of Israel, knew about the Messiah to come was contained in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, I don't think they had probably understood everything they read, and they sure learned a lot more when the apostles came along and the Lord and, and, and taught them and wrote some things down. But it's really neat to me to look at some of the things that we read in the Old Testament and just hit a few highlights 
because it confirms what we read in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I'll tell you furthermore, uh, in confirmation beyond confirming the hope that lies within the breast of each of us as believing children of God, is that it helps us to know for a certainty that the things that we read in the New Testament are true. Yeah. yeah. Because it's impossible to look at the Old Testament and see the references to things that would come and think that that is somehow coincidental. Or that that is some, you know, just ironical collusion of authors that just happened to fall in place over a period of, you know, a couple thousand years. It would just be absurd to think that. That's right. And so I'd like tonight, if you would turn with me to the first chapter of Hosea, and let's read a little bit about some prophecies that were given to the nation of Israel that foreshadowed some things that would come to pass through the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. And I think have great implications for us, not just in our hope, but ensuring us that not only is the Bible accurate, for instance, but that the translation most of us rely on, that is the King James translation, is a, not just a valid and good translation, but it's one we all stick with. Because there's some things that the Old Testament talk about that a lot of the newer translations leave out in the New Testament. For instance, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. There are a lot of more modern, quote, I'm just going to use that word loosely. I think you know what I mean, modern translations. Right. I don't mean that they're necessarily uh, accurate translations Amen. in my mind, but most people would consider them to be, right. you know, that, that don't have that passage of Scripture. There are three that bear a record in heaven, the Father and the Word yep. and the Holy Ghost pointing us to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as the Trinity. And then you say, well, is the Trinity present in the Old Testament? Well, sure, we see references to it there. And so if we see it in the Old Testament, it shouldn't surprise us to see it more directly elucidated for us in the New Testament, right? You know, the New Testament brought many things to light that were shadowed and veiled in the Old Testament. And so it should make us want to handle the, the Word of God very delicately Amen. and to rely on translations that, that have things there that um, have proven to be true and that we know are true by experience, but also that are confirmed in the Old Testament. Now, in the book of Hosea, I'm not going to read everything here, but I'm, I'm going to go quickly. I'm going to read for you in the second verse, and I'll read this kind of quickly because there, there are a lot of names, there are a lot of things going on here, but I, I think it just makes a, a point to us, and, and we'll take that somewhere else. So... Don't try to remember every name here. Most of you are very familiar with this passage of Scripture, but this says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. Now that was true for the nation of Israel, but that was also true for all of humanity, right? When right. sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, of course, Paul wrote over in the book of Romans that wherefore by one man sin entered the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men. We don't like to use words that offend people these days, but really we're all children of, of sin. Right. And we are born in sin, not that our parents were committing sin when we were conceived per se, but we just inherited sin. So really in a way, being members of the human race, we all fall into this category. Well, it's perhaps an offensive term, but, it, but we're children of whoredom in a sense, of, of sin right. and of and of people who have willfully departed from the service of the Savior. Amen. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. 
And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said, Call her name Loruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by a bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, nor by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name Lo-Ami, or Lo-Ami. I may be pronouncing these in a different way from which you heard them pronounced in the past, but I don't uh, have the advantage of being a scholar like Brother Chris is, who I take my hat off to. But I think you get the idea. Yet the number of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Now these people were proclaimed as having gone into to whoredom. Again, that's a harsh word, I know. But essentially what it meant was that they had departed from their true love that we sang about just before I got up here. Our beloved, who loved us before the foundation of the world, who loved us when He died on the cross, and who loves us today when He sends His Spirit into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, that great lover of our souls is someone that we've all rebelled against. Not just in our nature, but also in our actions. And He's saying... All of you fall into that. And yet, in the place wherein I said you are not my children, it shall be said you are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So what is all... I know know that's a lot. You could spend a lot of time on that. But for sake of time, if you go back to uh, the book of 2 Kings... Along in the 8th, 9th, and 10th chapters, you'll read a very interesting account of a man named Jehu. Now, in the days of Solomon's son Rehoboam, the nation of Israel had been split into what at this time was called the nation of Israel, which were the, the basically the northern ten tribes, and the nation of Judah, um, which, would have, which was in the south. And again, not to go too far into that, but these folks didn't always get along. Right. And, and they had a lot of different kings. The Lord put up with their idolatry for a long time. He, he many times punished them and they would repent for a time. But essentially the northern group of folks fell into idolatry almost immediately after the kingdoms split under Jeroboam. And mostly uh, un, until the time when they were taken into uh, captivity by the Assyrians, they pretty much had bad kings. Most of their kings were just right. idol-worshiping, Worthless people. Um, the nation of Judah had some good ones and they had some bad ones. And the Lord, the Lord was merciful to them for a while longer until at one point, until finally Nebuchadnezzar takes them into captivity in Babylon. Right. And so at this time, you've had a, 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 a real wicked king named Ahab some years before. Uh, now, it may well have been a child of God, but in terms of his actions and the way he dealt with people, he, right. he, he was wicked in his doings and most of the things he did. And he's died, and you know, and, and one of his um, they call the sons is on the throne. Of course, it's several generations later. And Jehu gets word that he is to become king in his stead. So the the king of Israel at the time in the ninth chapter of Second Kings, King Joram, has been in the battle with the Syrians, and he is at um, a place called Jezreel, recovering from his wounds. And that was the place where the, the kings of the northern kingdom had sort of established their palace and, and area of administration. 
In fact, Ahab um, had once, as you know, uh, his wife at least, Jezebel, had had a man killed so Ahab could have his vineyard, Naboth's vineyard. You've all heard of that. That was, that was in Jezreel. And so Joram has been in this um, battle. He's been wounded. He comes back home to heal up. Now this is around the same time Jehu has been told uh, earlier in the chapter by Elisha's servant that he's to be king. So Jehu's a great captain apparently. He, he saddles up the horses. He says, all right guys, I'm supposed to be king. Let's go get rid of all the bad guys. And they travel down to Jezreel. And it just so happens, isn't this ironic? Now, this is really ironic. That not only is the king of Israel at Jezreel at this time, but the king of Judah is also there. And he's a guy named Ahaziah. So it just so happens that they're both there in this one city. And Jehu comes up with this man. And long story short, there's a great battle. And Jehu wipes them all out. In fact, he takes a bow himself and kills the king of Israel. His men kill, catch the king of Judah and they kill him. And then they not only do that, they go on and they destroy basically all of Ahab's family. Right. It's almost like what happened in a, in a very small localized way. What happened when the Lord sent the flood, right? Yeah. <laughs> the Lord finally, you know, he, 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 he's long suffering and he puts up with sin, you know, in a, in a long suffering way. He gives people right. an opportunity to repent. He sends his messengers and he says, hey, repent, follow after me. They don't do it. And at some point the Lord says, okay, Enough is enough. When the flood came, the Lord basically did away with everybody but Noah and his family, right? Here's an instance of a much more local judgment where God says, okay, Jehu, go wipe them out. And Jehu does. And he wipes out the, um, the priests of Baal. He just kind of starts over. And you know, so when you read some of these things over in Hosea, think about it now. The time of Jehu and the time of Jezreel, the wicked king of Israel is killed. The wicked, well, Judah, he, was, he was, wasn't so hot either. He's killed. Jezebel is killed. The priests of Baal are killed. And it's almost as if the Lord is saying, okay, I'm going to set Jehu here as a judge, and he's just going to go wipe out all of this sin and immorality. But you know what happens? Pretty soon Jehu is doing some of the same stuff they were doing. <laughs> he gets rid of a lot of the bad folks, but he leaves the groves, and he leaves some of the idol worship. And so... Even though this is a kind of a bright time, and there's a point to this, this is a time when you kind of see justice reigning, you know, and here comes Jehu, the strong man on the horse, and he is a, he's a warrior on the side of God, and he's putting to death these wicked people, and he's putting to death these wicked priests, and you see righteousness start to come about in the land. You see all that, but you look a few years down the road, and you start to see people fall into the same old things. They're back into what Hosea would call whoredoms. Yeah. They're back into worshiping idols. Right. They're back into taking their eyes off the Savior, the lover of their souls, who would come and die for them. Okay? And they're looking around them at the things around them, and they're making themselves gods and goddesses again. And brothers and sisters, there have been other periods of time through history when the Lord allowed righteous men and women to come in in local areas okay, and set things straight for a while. I believe it happened when our Puritan forefathers um, fled England and went to Holland and then went back to England and then came over here. Now, they didn't do everything like we do it. Okay? They had some doctrinal differences with us right. and some strange things, but they were willing to put their lives on the line yeah to get away from what they saw as idolatry in the church, which some of it really was idolatry because some of those folks were praying to saints and to statues 
And they said, we're not having that. And we will risk everything. We'll go to a new land. We'll set up a new colony under God's laws, laws based on the Bible. And we'll start over and do it right. It's kind of like Jehu did. Jehu comes in under, under the authority of God, having been told by Elisha's servant, and he sets some things right. But what happens? Give it a few years. And then here's Hosea. Here's the preacher again. <laughs> you did it again, <laughs> children of God. <laughs> you did it again, the old honey. <laughs> you did it again. Plug your name in there. We're like that. We're like that. Is we're like that. If you look at the sweeping view of humanity, and our lives, I'm sad to say, are a microcosm of that. You know, we get fired up under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and we go in there spiritually speaking, and we kill off some things in our hearts. And we kill off some lusts and we kill off some desires, but it's just our nature. Yeah. What happens? You give it a little time and those idols you toppled, I'm, I'm sad to say, some get replaced by other things mm -hmm. and we get drawn away. You see, if, if human righteousness, as, as Hosea said, if, if swords and bows and battle and horses and horsemen or the right president, or the right political leaders, or the right laws could give righteousness to man, we'd have had a long time ago. Right. Right. <laughs> so you get here the time of Hosea, and Hosea's crying out about these things. He says there's, there's whoredom and there's idolatry. And you'll notice here, he goes and takes a wife who, as it turns out, is not a faithful woman. Right. And they have these three children. And the Lord uses the names of these three children, if you will, to kind of pronounce some things that are going to happen. Pronounce some judgments. Now, is it accidental that in this passage of Scripture, in this portion here, as judgment is being proclaimed and that hope is being proclaimed? And as you start to see, and folks back then would have understood the history better than we do now, I think, just reading it, of what happened at Jezreel and what Jehu did and what he conquered and what he accomplished and what he didn't accomplish. It's not accidental as the Lord is putting that in perspective with human failure and with deliverance that he again reminds us in numbers of three. Now I've preached a little bit about this before, but I just want you to think with me for a little while tonight about how the Lord begins to open our eyes in the Old Testament to what he would do in the New Testament. Think with me what the, the commandment that the disciples were given in Matthew, the 28th chapter. In the 18th verse, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus said, All power is given to me. And because all power is given to me, to Jesus, go baptize in the name, not names, go baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Why does it, you know, it's almost like a grammatical error to say it that way, isn't it? I don't know if any English teachers here, but I'm not an English teacher, but my mother grilled us. Every time we took a long trip when we were kids, <laughs> she would say, okay, what's wrong with this phrase? What's wrong with this phrase? I don't got none. And she'd go down, what's wrong with that? Well, why, how come you can't say that? Well, what? You don't use double negatives. You don't say, I ain't got none. Right? 
You did, I mean, you don't use words like that. She would just go down the line, down the line. You don't say to baptize in the name of three people. Right. Right? Because it's not three people. Right. It's one God. I know we can't right. completely understand it yet. Right. But we serve a one God right. manifested to us in three persons. Yep. Now, why is it important that Jesus reminds us of that and tells us when you go out and you preach to people and you make disciples, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. If I ask you tonight what that name is, you would all shout Jesus, right? Yeah. Jesus is the name. Yeah. He and the Father are one. It is His Spirit that comes into your heart when you're born again. And it was certainly Jesus that died on the cross. Yeah. But I think Jesus is reminding us of something. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there, and Eve takes of the fruit, and Adam takes of the fruit, there were three beings, right? You see Adam, and you see Eve, and who else was there? What other living individual was there at that time? Of course, it was that serpent, right? Now, we know the Lord is everywhere in spirit. He sees all things. He's everywhere present, nowhere absent, as the people say. But in that beginning of sin, you see, it's on Adam, okay? Because of Adam, sin entered the world. Yeah. But, you, but you see three beings there characterized in the garden. And as you go through the scripture and you see the redemption that the Lord will bring, and as he brings his law into the nation of Israel, and he starts to teach them about how they will sacrifice, about how they will bring you know, the sacrifices of blood before him, about how the priests will be consecrated, he, he tells them that they should be very careful. We've talked about this before that when Aaron and his sons are set aside, okay, that they are, that they are cleansed you know, on their head, on their hands, on their feet. He looks at, the, at the, the, the three portions of their anatomy, just as Peter does when the Lord is washing the disciples' feet. And Peter says, well, if you, I don't want you, you, you know, it would not be for you to wash my feet. And the Lord says, if I don't wash you, you're not, you're not clean at all. And he says, well, then, you know, sometimes we say, he said, well, don't just wash my feet, wash me all over. But that's not really what he said. He said, then also wash my head and my hands and my feet. Because there was an understanding in their, in their minds as Jewish people as they looked at these types and shadows and as they saw how the priest had to be cleansed before they could go into the Lord's service, that I'm not just a sinner with my hands and I'm not just a sinner with my feet in terms of what I physically go out and do, but I'm a sinner in my mind. Right. Yeah. See, that's where it starts. Yeah. I am body, soul, and spirit, Right. And my soul and my spirit are corrupt because of what I inherited from Adam. But my body's also corrupt. And I know that there is a component of sin that's passed down in, in that sin nature in terms of the lust of the flesh. But I'm also a sinner because I sin. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's right. I need, I need to be cleansed every whit. Yeah. Body, soul, spirit, the whole nine yards. Yeah. And the Lord does that for us. He brings that cleansing to us. And you see that as you, as you look down through the passages of Scripture. And you get right here and you read that there's gonna, you know, there are these three children with really odd names. And the Lord says, in the place, in verse 10, where it was said unto them, you are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. How is it that these people like us who were sinners with their, with their hands, with what they did. They were sinners with their feet, with where they went. And they were sinners in their minds with their lusts. And by the way, I don't think it's accidental in the second chapter of 1 John, when John is writing to us about why we sin, 
He brings it to us into three categories, does He not? There's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and there's the pride of life. How is it these people who are in possession of this corrupt nature and who have gone into whoredom because of their ancestry and because of their actions and have been proclaimed to be none of His will be proclaimed in that same place to be children of God. I believe that the Lord's children, okay, in God's mind, though He saw what they would be, and though He saw what they would become, and the day that He looked down before the foundation of the world, and He said that they've all become filthy, they've all gone aside, they've all gone back. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. In that day, the Lord proclaimed, I see them. I see them stretch out from day one, you know, and, and day two of creation, and day three, and day four, and day five, and then he finishes up creation. Day six, he looks and he says, it is good. It is very good. And then they're in their garden. I think they were there a very short time because, because you know, Adam and Eve were instructed to be fruitful and multiply, and they weren't multiplying yet. So they couldn't have been there too long. And perhaps just days after creation is finished, and the Lord looks at it, and it's very good. Then suddenly they have sinned and they have plunged us into this death, into this whoredom that will go on until the Lord ends things here. Thousands of years. And the Lord looked down at that and He sees it stretch out before Him. And He sees, okay, there's this one, this one, this one, this one. There's Jehu. He was pretty good for a while. Look what he did. You go down through time. Well, there was Hosea. He, he tried, but he was a sinner too. And you get down on down. There were some good people in the Bible that tried to do some righteous things. And they did do some good things. But was there one that was perfect? Was, it, was there one that was a man after God's own heart? Oh, yes, David was. But did he sin? Sure, he yeah, sinned. Yeah. Was Solomon wise? Yes, he was wise. But sin still beset him. He could write things about the Savior that just make me want to cry, some of which we sang earlier. About my beloved. And who is this that come forth from out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? smelling of frankincense and myrrh. It's our Savior. He could write those things and turn right around and betray Him. How is it possible that the Lord could look right here and see that and proclaim them all? They've all become filthy. They've all together become filthy and they've all gone aside. And they've all gone back. And yet He could look in that same day and look down at His children this vast multitude of people that no man could number. But he's numbered. Yeah. And knows every one. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And in that same place, he could declare them righteous. Mm-hmm. How is it possible? Yeah. You know, I, I wonder if Hosea wondered about that. Can you think about it? This man who had enough faith to go out and take this woman who wasn't a great woman, as you, as you find out when you read the rest of the, the book here, and yet he obeys the Lord. And he preaches and he proclaims the doom of this nation. And I wonder if he ever lay awake at night and thought, well, Lord, you said that you weren't going to be their God. And then you said that they would be as a number of people like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be numbered or measured. How could that possibly be? It's such a contrast. Here on one hand, we're worthless. And here on the other hand, We're the children of God. What could be more precious? It'd be precious to be uh, the child of maybe royalty or something like that. Well, actually, I really wouldn't want that. Because all those people seem messed up. Okay, it would be precious. 
You know, to be the child of godly parents. Say, I've got that. You know, I have godly parents. Thank the Lord for that. So that's precious. But to be the son of God, the children of God, the daughter of God, what's that worth? Man, you could have put a value on that. And so he sees them corrupt. Body, soul, spirit. And yet you see the Lord proclaim them as his children. You see these three people in the Garden of Eden there, you know what the Lord's proclaimed to be very good. There's, there's Adam, he sins. There's Eve, she's deceived. There's Satan. Doesn't sound good. And it wasn't good. And what they found out pretty soon was there wasn't anything good about what happened in that. God was merciful, but he drove them out of the garden. They learned a lot of things that day. And a lot of it was no doubt a great shock to them. Their eyes were open in a very bad way. You know, I think we should probably be careful sometimes here in this life about wanting to know too much about certain things. You know, there's some things, I've said this before here, I think, but I know, as Brother Max, I haven't been here in a while, so I could probably hurt to say it again, especially if you're younger ones. There's some things that's better you just don't know anything about. You don't have to prove a negative or, you know, or prove something sinful because you know exactly how to do it. Okay? Right. It's better if you don't know certain things. Now, you've got to be wise and discerning. You know, the, the Scriptures are very tastefully written. Okay? The Scriptures tell you that there are things that you know, men on this planet and women on this planet do that are abomination. Amen. You don't need to know every single detail about how they do those things to know that they're an abomination. Right. You just need to know not to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? But the Lord looked down and He saw all this and He said, yet I'll have a, a number of children as the sands of the sea. Amen. How did God accomplish that? If in that place that they were declared okay, to be unrighteous, in God's mind they were declared righteous, it tells me that God in His wisdom and His understanding had a plan in mind, right? Amen. Now you're old Baptist, so I know you know what that plan was. The Lord looked down and said, hey, these are mine. I want them with me someday. And in the person of Jesus Christ, they were redeemed Okay? They were made clean on the cross. And every one of them in this life, sometime between conception and death, is born again by the Spirit of God. You see, it's not accidental when we read in the Scripture about, you know, in Genesis 18th chapter, three men showing up to talk to Abraham, right? right. And Abraham calls one Lord. Okay? It's not coincidental in the 17th chapter of Matthew that when the Lord begins to reveal His glory to His disciples, Peter, James, and John, three men on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's also three men, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's Elijah, Moses, and the Savior. Yeah. You know, we see that. We see those reminders as we get closer to the cross. It's almost as though three is, is sort of like maybe this, no, I won't say magic number because that sounds kind of Disney. <laughs> I know some of you are Disney fans, but hey, I got a lot of problems with that. that ain't one of them. But it's a significant number because it tells us about our Savior God. Amen. That there's the work of the Father, there's the work of the Son, and there's the work of the Holy Spirit.
in our lives. When you get, uh, we could go on and on and on, but it really culminates to me at the cross. As I said, you, you, you see it again in, in Peter's words to the Lord at the Last Supper as the Lord's washing their feet. Lord, don't just wash my feet, but wash my hands and wash my head. Peter got a little bit of it. But then you see him turn around and deny the Lord three times also, right? Right before the Lord is taken to the cross. You see there on that day, three men again. But you don't see, in a natural sense, the glory that Abraham saw. See, Abraham saw the Lord in the 18th chapter of Genesis. He called him Lord. I believe it was the Lord. I don't know how the Lord did that exactly, but I just believe the Lord did. And on that day, here's the Lord again on the cross in between two men. You know, you see that over his head is written in three languages Jesus, King of the Jews. There are three women at his feet. He's stripped three times, he's nailed on with three nails. He gives His life for us. And then He's in the grave three days and three nights. And when He comes forth, He teaches His disciples a lot of things. But one thing He teaches them for sure is as you go out and you tell people about Me, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. I wonder if any Christians have ever tripped over that. Why do they say the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost? Isn't that the names? Or maybe they just ought to use one name. You know, I had, I had one pastor one time that he would baptize this way. He said, I baptize you, my brother. He didn't baptize me, but I saw him baptize some other people. So I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, which is Jesus, which is true. But I think the Lord just said, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. So that's what we do. Yeah. It ought to remind us of something. Amen. Okay. We're thrice sinners. Amen. Body, soul, spirit. Amen. We need to be thrice redeemed. And I don't mean that the Lord went to the cross three times. <laughs> but we need to be redeemed body, soul, and spirit. Amen. And our Savior did it for us. And the day when we were proclaimed as guilty and the Lord looked at us, He also set a plan in motion to take back something that swords and spears and bows and guns and tanks and the Crusades in the Middle Ages, yeah. and everything that's been done since in the name of religion, and all the things that the Catholic Church did, you know, 500 years ago, and persecuting them. I mean, all of those things when people sought to take religion into their hands, and they sought, like Jehu did, by the sword to bring righteousness. And mm. <clears throat> couldn't do it. The Lord did it through the sacrifice of His Son. Yeah. Yeah. See? <clears throat> When the Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, you know, he placed a, you know, a flaming you know, sword there yeah. at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. So even if they wanted to get back in, and of course they couldn't. And I'm quite sure many times they would have liked to have gotten back in. Um, but they couldn't go back. There is a sword there. There is judgment there. They couldn't go back in the garden and walk with the Lord in the cool of the evening. No. No. Why? Is there was sin in their lives. Right. There was sin in their hearts. There was sin in their bodies. Yeah. The sword of Jehu comes along many years later. And oh, it, he wiped out some wickedness. But you know, as strong a sword arm as he had, he couldn't wipe out the wickedness in his own heart, could he? Right. You can't either. Amen. <clears throat> the days of Gideon, 
you know, many battles were fought. The days of the other judges, righteousness many times was, was wrought for, for a time. But the only righteousness that will really last, okay, and it's in a, and it's in a symbolic way of overcoming that sword at the, at the entrance of the garden that separates us from that fellowship with God is the sword of the Spirit of God. Amen. When it penetrates into the heart of the child of God, and it is quick, and it is sharper, and it is power, more powerful than any two-edged sword, even dividing asunder the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, you need to be cleansed. Body, soul, and spirit. But it's not something that the natural sword could do. A surgeon can't go in with a scalpel and cut that out. No. It takes the work of the Savior. And I am, I am so glad. I, I wish it would go on, but you know, we, we, you'll get tired eventually. Brother Chris and I said, we're each going to take two hours. And, uh, and I said, and I guess you know, when everybody leaves, he said, well, everybody leaves, Brother Neil, then I'll leave and you can lock the door on your way out. But when you think about the, the, the maladies and the tragedies that befall us in life. And not, not just sickness, but the times when we mess up and we sin and we feel guilty and we feel low and we know we're worms. Mm. So you can take comfort in the fact that, let me tell you, your Savior knows that too. Yeah. 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 Amen. He looked down through time before the foundation of the world and He saw yeah. everything you would do, good and bad. He saw everything I would do, good and bad. And he said, I love them anyway. They're mine. Someday, they will feel the sword of my spirit. And though there's nothing naturally they can do to change themselves, I'll accomplish it. You know, and if you're suffering from sickness or, or weakness or any of those things, listen, the, the power of the gospel is in holding on to that. Amen. That what the Lord did for me it's not just here. And if the Lord never blesses me again here in this life, and I know He will, if He gives me another breath, He's blessed me. But if He never gives me another dollar, or if I pass away tomorrow, listen, He's looking at the big picture. He's looking outside this. And I think it's a great hope. When we sang that song, Brother Austin, it made me want to reach out and grab a hold of the beloved. And say, Lord, take me in Your arms. But I know it's probably going to be a little while longer. Until he does, it's good to see you all again. Thank you for your time. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.